Welcome to Queer Writers of Crime, featuring interviews with renowned LGBTQ authors and up-and-coming talent in mystery, suspense, and thriller novels. I'm your host, Brad Shreve, and Justine is here to give her weekly recommendation. Justine, I lied to you last week. Again, tell me that you didn't lie about not changing the name. No, no, no. I'm not changing the name. The name is here to stay. Oh, yeah, yeah. As long as we can keep holding you accountable every every couple of weeks, I'm going to make you repeat that promise. <laughs> no problem. No problem there. Last week, you complained because I have extended your segment <laughs> and you you felt like I was taking it all with announcements. Well, you know, it, it, it's fine, but I was just, I was just thinking that our listeners might want to like not have the whole extension going to announcements. Yes, you are correct. So I'll make these quick, but I told you last week that I would only have one announcement and you said, yeah, but you got a whole week to think about it. Well, you're yeah, right, but, yeah. I only, but I only have two. One of them's a, a big event that's coming up. So, okay, I'm let, ready. Let me, Hit me. Grab, let me grab my scraps of paper. Okay. Okay. This is something I would love if. All of our listeners would participate in, and all they have to do to participate is watch and listen. And that is Queer Noir at the Bar. Oh, yes. And I'm looking forward to that. Well, I am too. It's coming up Friday, February 12th, and I will be one of the people reading. And there's a slew of us that will be reading segments of our books, and you also learn a little bit about each author. And it's no cost. It is a fundraiser for Lambda Literary. But it's no right. cost to, to sign in and, and watch what's going on. It's on Crowdcast, which is a lot like Zoom. Right. But people that are going to be on that we've had on the show, we've got John Copenhaver as a host. Yeah. And then Dharma Kelleher has been on twice. Mm-hmm. Ann Laughlin's been on. Uh, Edwin Hill was on last week. Right. Right. He, All good he, names. He's the one that put it together. And he'll be reading as well. Mm-hmm. And then some folks coming up that are going to be on the show, PJ Vernon, Wendy Hurd, and Meredith Dench, they wow. are coming up and they'll be reading as well. So there is a link on the website and I'll also have it in the show notes. It'll say Queer Noir at the bar. So look at that and take a look and please join us. It'd be great. <laughs> It'll be fun. And you also will have the opportunity to donate some money to Lambda Literary because like all charities this year, they are hurting. Yes, yes. Okay. Are you ready for announcement there, number two? Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say Lambda Literary is a great organization. It's got one of the best award programs out there. So people should really support them, particularly if they enjoy the gay mystery genre and the larger gay literature genre. I agree. And I suggest going to their website and sign up for the newsletter because it's a monthly newsletter. I think it's a monthly yeah. newsletter. They yes, always have a good list of book recommendations and periodically mm-hmm. John Copenhaver writes reviews that he suggests that are crime novels. Right. Definitely check them out. Join the show and also check out Lem- Lambda Literary. They are a great organization. So are you ready for number two? Okay. All right. Okay. Back a while ago, we did Patreon and we only did it for about a month and I closed it down because I didn't want people to be locked into having to pay every month. But people have asked me, why can't I give money on Patreon? Yeah. So I did add a button to both the show notes and on the website because I do this as a labor of love. I don't do it to raise money and I will do it no matter what. But it does cost me almost $100 a month to run this show. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. So I am more than happy if... People would like to donate whatever they want to give. Dollar, hundred dollars, whatever. <laughs> and I'm really pushing it with the hundred dollars. That's fine. But are they a subscribe or do they just give money one time? They just give money one time. There may be an option to subscribe monthly, but it's mainly a tip jar. Okay. You log in, right. you drop your money, and you can write thank you or whatever you want. It's called buy me a cup of coffee. So the website, there's a button that says buy me a cup of coffee. And in the show notes, there will be a link that says buy me a cup of coffee. Now, I know Justine will probably use the money to buy tequila or something of that nature. I don't know. That's already in my budget. <laughs> okay. That's really built in. <laughs> but I always need coffee money. That's right. right. So look out for those. And if you can, that'd be great. If not, 
we'll still be here no matter what. That's right. Okay. So that only took about five minutes. So you've got plenty of time to do your (laughs) book recommendation. I, I rambled it really fast for you. All right. Well, you know, now, now we're going to be stuck with, uh, I hope that I, I fill the time so that everybody knows. Well, we'll see. Oh, wait a minute. I forgot one thing. Oh, good. Just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I'm I'm pulling up the spreadsheet of things I have suggested before. And I think that, okay, I realized that what I thought was a steamy recommendation is actually called a flaming recommendation on my recommendation system. So if you like flaming or you avoid flaming, that gives you an idea of what this is about. The book is Among the Living, the first in the Psychop series of novels, and it's written by Jordan Castillo Price. This is the first book, and at the end, she says, well, there may be a couple more books that I write. Last week, she released the 12th book in the Psychop series. The, the relationship between the two main characters It's interesting because a lot of books with couples solving crimes have a lot of romance in the first book, and then they kind of just settle into a relationship. This one starts off as a hookup that goes uh, exceedingly well, but is not the normal romance sort of rhythm. But as the series goes on, there's more romance rather than less romance in the story. So that gives you the romantic heat, flaming level, uh, a lot of good sex scenes if you like that. However, there is a crime. There is a crime. It's really a terrific crime now because the psychop, the main character, Victor Bain, is a psychic. And the other main characters in it are Lisa Gutierrez, who is his partner. And then Jacob Marks and Carolyn are the other two partners who are cops. And the setup is somewhat futuristic, although it's set in a probably an alternate timeline to this one. The how do, how do I say this? There's acceptance of psychics, although there's still some prejudice against psychics, but you know, they're now officially accepted and, and used. But there's still a, a fair amount of homophobia, so much so that Victor Bain tries to keep himself closeted. And I'm not sure if that wasn't so much the time at which it was originally written. I thought Psychop was an odd name, but it makes perfect sense now that you explained it. Right. Do and you the remember way the TV? Is, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, uh, what do you, TV do you, show which? Do you remember the TV show where the woman helped the police? She was psychic? Medium. Medium. Or Ghost Whisper. Which which one did you? Medium. Think? That was a great show. Patricia Arquette. She was really yes, wonderful. yes, that was a wonderful show. So she, anyway. she worked with a Texas Ranger, and that actually was based on a real psychic. Although everybody has their opinion about whether psychics are real, but it was based on a a real person who worked with the Texas Rangers and so, had helped them on some cases. So we're talking about TV rather than books. So uh, you well, just, I know, you just but, made you my know. Bro- you made my mind go there. Well, that's why we have these uh, lengthier segments now, so yes. that we can we can afford these little forays into popular culture. Okay, well, back to anyway, Jordan's book. Back to Jordan's book. So the, the system is set up that there's a psychic branch of the police force, and you have to be a certified psychic to be in, and each psychic is paired with someone who is not psychic, who is the slang for that is stiff, where they, they radiate no psychic energy. And the, the psychic cop goes out and the, the stiff cop is not only there as a check on the psychic cop, someone who can actually deal with the practicalities while the, the cop is, the psychic guy is dealing with their psychic uh, ability, but also to act as a check to say, look, I, maybe you're off base here or not. Each psychic has a different ability and they have a different level of ability. And Victor Bain speaks to the dead. And he is such a high-level psychic that the dead almost never leave him alone. So what he does to turn the voices off is he uses a drug called RSL. And at the beginning of the book, he is now 
taking an increased quite a bit dose of Oracell. And he's the equivalent of drunk. And he runs into Jacob, who is another cop. And they hook up in the bathroom. And then, you know, as these things go, Jacob and his partner, Carolyn, they show up as somebody else for Victor to work with. Did you say he speaks to the dad or they speak to him? Both. They have long conversations. Oh, interesting. I would love to be able to speak to the dad because there are some people that are no longer in my life that I would love to say a few things to. Oh, no, he doesn't have he doesn't get that. No, no, that is not how this works at all. Not that I carry a grudge, but (laughs) no, 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 it's not how it works at all. People who were murdered or committed suicide are hanging around, like going ranting on and on about just how bad things were and who killed them and the like. And so he only like runs into a ghost where they died. And, you know, it's basically like you know, the crazy homeless person on the street who comes up and bothers you. And that's why he's got to take the oral cell to tear him off. That um, sounds like something that would be fun for like a day and it would get really old fast. Oh, yeah. There's a dead prostitute who is lives outside of his apartment who just rants and raves at him every time he comes home. Goes on and on and on about how he's like ignoring her and he's just like all the others. And then starts ranting about, you know, how she died. And it's just, you know, he's off intersections and dead people who have died in car accidents. He can't tell for sure while he's driving along at a high speed, whether or not they're real people or dead people. And he's got to swerve around them. And then because nobody else can see him, he swerves into them. It is really not someplace that uh, you'd want to go. But since he has this ability, the best way to use this ability is as a homicide detective. His former partner, Maurice, just retired, and he's assigned a, a new partner called Lisa Gutierrez. And very quickly in the book, we discover that Lisa has psychic abilities of her own. And she answered the questions in such a way that it appeared that she was not psychic. So she gets assigned to him and she gets quickly called out. Her psychic ability is that. If she asks a specific question, she'll get yes, no. And so if you say, is the killer still in the city? Yes. Has he killed more than this many people? Yes. And how many of these people are in the city too? And she says, yes. And they go about and they're able to sort this out. But she's suspended before the police department. And then he's assigned to Jacob and and Carolyn. Jacob is a non-psychic, and he's been partnered with Carolyn for a long time. Carolyn is only a level two psychic. Um, Levels go up to six. Victor is a five. But she's a level two psychic that can tell when someone is lying. So she's very good at questioning witnesses. So Jacob now has both Victor and Carolyn on his team. And the three of them, who are not supposed to talk to Lisa at all, bring her in to investigate the case. And, uh, you know, all sorts of trouble on that end does. The murders themselves are very interesting. But when he shows up at the murder scene, he finds a naked male body in the middle of the bed and then shards of mirrors all around them. And in the first scene, he can't find the spirit at all. And then he said, even if when I'm on RSL, they leave me alone. But if I want to open my, my mind and listen to them, I can always find them. And here I am hung over from my heavy dose of Oracell, but I'm not really impaired at all. And I can't hear this person. And then when they go to the second murder scene, he discovers the same thing. So the murderer has somehow done something that has so that the dead spirit is not hanging around telling anybody any clues. And that basically gives you the story. You got a serial killer who's doing these unique, bizarre killings. They can't find any witnesses who recognize who the serial killer is. And they go about and solve the crime. They find the clues. They use Carolyn's ability to interview the witnesses to find out if they're telling the truth or not. They find uh, they use his ability talking to uh, dead people, although, you know, it's significant that the dead people aren't speaking to him. So he doesn't quite have all the information he usually has. They use Lisa's ability of yes, no to track down and trying to figure out where the actual killer is. And 
through it all. Jacob handles himself quite well. He knows how to use these abilities and he knows how to stand as a buffer between the psychics and the various other people around at the scene, the witnesses, the medical examiners, the beat cops, and he just handles all of that quite well. Sounds like some good world building with the different types of Yes, people. yes. It took her very long to write the first book uh, with all the world building. It's an, it's actually a novella length, but she builds a lot of the world. And then she, the I've read most of the books. The 12th one has just come out, but I've read the others. And the world stays very consistent throughout. There's not much later of saying there's this tweak in his ability that didn't really exist in the earlier books. It, it always stays consistent. And he and Jacob, as you might guess, Jacob is the hookup at the beginning. And then he's got to work with him as being the non-psychic member of this four-person group. And that that becomes a little uncomfortable. But somehow they manage to keep that relationship going. And how did you rate this recommendation? It's a steamy. Nope, nope, nope. Steamy is not the right word. A flaming recommendation. Flaming. So there's some good scenes there, too. Is that all you got? That's all I have. Okay, great. We will talk to you next week. Okay, we're looking forward to it. We're sponsored by Record Tales, preserving our LGBTQ literary heritage one book at a time. Check them out at requeertales.com. Steve Neil Johnson is the author of the best-selling Doug Orlando mysteries, Final Atonement and False Confessions, for which one critic said Johnson may very well turn out to be our queer Raymond Chandler. The Orlando books grew out of his experiences working for the District Attorney of Brooklyn. The L.A. After Midnight Quartet is a four-book epic of gay life in the City of Angels, beginning in the 1950s and ending in the 1980s, with each book representing a different decade. He is currently at work in the final book in the series. Steve lives with his husband in Brentwood, Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Steve. I'm glad to have you on today. Well, thank you so much for having me. You have two series. You have the Doug Correct. Orlando Mysteries, and then you have the L.A. After Midnight Quartet. That is correct. Yeah. I want to ask you, starting off, about the Doug Orlando series. That started in 92 and 93, am I correct? Yes. Uh huh. They were published by Penguin almost 30 years now. Okay. The first one was Final Atonement. That was your first book? It was, yes. And that was nominated for a Lambda Literary Award. You were a finalist. Yes, indeed. Why did you stop at two? Well, actually, the books didn't sell as well as we had hoped. And so Penguin didn't want to continue with them. At that time period, there were a lot of gay writers being published. And I think a lot of people in the publishing industry felt gay books were going to be the next big thing. And then it just didn't happen. The uh, sales numbers just weren't there. The good news about the Doug Orlando books for me is that eventually they went out of print and the rights reverted back to me. And I self-publish them on Amazon now. So people are still reading them 30 years later. So th- that's kind of what happened with those books. And in those days, you kind of had less opportunities. You didn't have the internet. Nowadays, if you publish a book with a big publisher and they decide they don't want to continue with them, you can just you know self-publish them on Amazon. But we didn't have that at that time. Okay. So I want to talk about your growing up. You grew up and were raised in Seattle. I was, yes. Uh-huh. Why did you leave Seattle? I was so sick and tired of the rain. Seattle is a wonderful city, but it rains like nine months out of the year. And I just wanted sunshine. So I did a crazy thing. I moved to New York City, you know, which is you get a little bit of sunshine, but you get a whole lot of blizzards. And I was there throughout most of the 1980s. But by 1987, I just decided I really wanted to be in L.A. And I moved here. 30 years ago, and I never looked back. You had a little adventure going from Seattle to New York. Do you want to talk about that? When I went to New York, I was planning on on going just for the summer. I uh, got on the plane. I just had a backpack. And back in those days, we used to do Western dancing. I had my boots tied to the back of the backpack. 
And, uh, but I ended up spending seven years there instead. And it was actually really informative for me as a writer, because my first books, my first mystery novels, the Doug Orlando books take place in New York. And I worked in a lot of law offices and also in the district attorney's office. So I got a lot of background and I really got to know the city well, what makes it tick, what the people are like. So those Doug Orlando books were written by an insider who, who really knew that city well. Yeah, I would think working for the district attorney would give you a lot of information to write from. Yeah, and, and the Doug Orlando books are really uh, ripped from the headlines type books. A lot of the stuff in there are, is factual, including some of the murder cases. So you moved to New York with the goal of becoming an author, which many I people did, do. Yeah. Yeah. And like most, you didn't immediately write the great American novel. So other than working for an attorney's office, what was your life like in New York? Well, I moved there just before uh, we learned about the AIDS crisis. I mean, I, I moved there literally a couple of weeks before the first mention of the disease uh, occurred in, in various publications. I, I can remember I was actually in the gym and the radio was playing and they mentioned this sort of new disease in which gay men were getting uh, skin cancer. And my response to it was, oh, you know, a lot of guys are just going out to Fire Island and this is this is what this is. And of course, it totally exploded and it the AIDS crisis really took over our lives. And I, I actually had a, a very interesting experience because I started working with AIDS researchers actually back in 1981. So it was very, very early. There was a, a very small number of cases at that time. And I worked with Mathilde Cram, who really became one of the great saints in the fight against AIDS. She was a PhD who ran the interferon labs at Sloan Kettering. And at that time period, there was hope that maybe interferon would be this miraculous cure for this new disease. And it didn't turn out to be, but she ended up dedicating her life to educating people about AIDS and raising money for the disease. She was very well connected with Hollywood. Her husband was a Hollywood mogul. And so she was able to draw people and money in from Hollywood to educate people about the disease. Now, in 1981, was it called AIDS then or was it still being called the gay cancer? I think the first official or name that it had was GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. And they, they dumped that moniker fairly soon. And they came up with the, the, the term AIDS, acquired immune deficiency syndrome. How did you come about working with AIDS researchers? What did you do? It, it was a total accident. My ex actually was uh, had a temp job at uh, Sloan Kettering and Interferon Labs where Dr. Krem worked. She was the head of the labs. And I came in there on weekends because I wanted to learn how to do word processing, which I, I guess some of your younger listeners probably wouldn't even know what a word processor is. <laughs> do, do, you, do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, because, yes, I do. Okay. Well, it was sort of like, yeah, there was a, a short period between the typewriters that were used in the 70s and the personal computers of the 90s. And these were these big, heavy machines. And basically, you'd have a keyboard and you would have a screen so you could edit on it, just like in Word. But that's kind of all it did. And it was, it was kind of the cliche in New York at the time that if you were a waiter, you'd make your living... If you're an actor, you make your living as a waiter. If you were a struggling novelist, you make your living doing temp work, word processing temp work, often in law offices and stuff like that. And that's what I did, uh, although I, I did have my own business, so my experience was a little bit different than, than the people who were temping. What was your own business? Well, it was just I offered word processing services, mostly, mostly to law offices, but uh, whenever Dr. Krem needed me, I was there. And it, it, it's kind of interesting when I read books about the AIDS crisis, I knew a lot of those people. I knew a lot of those researchers who were working to fight against AIDS at that time period. Yeah. And that's why I want to talk a little bit about during the AIDS crisis, I was a young man in North Carolina and I was closeted. So AIDS was something that was happening out there to those people. Oh. I was very sheltered by it. And I, I know what a difficult time it was for so many people that I didn't experience. But you experienced it from a different perspective working with researchers. Can you describe what that 
time period was like going through that? Well, it, it, it was a pretty scary time because we didn't know what it was. We, we made certain assumptions that it was uh, a virus that was similar to hepatitis in the way that it was spread, that it was spread through blood products, that it could be spread through having sex, but not you know, from someone sneezing on you or something like that. It's just like the AIDS crisis brings out the very, very best in people, and it brings out the very, very worst and living through that time period, I think, uh, was very uh, traumatizing for, for an awful lot of gay men because a lot of people acted so badly. So it, it was a, a very difficult and painful time. And of course, our friends and our loved ones were dying and they were dying terrible deaths. And for uh, a, a lot of people, they just, you know, they just didn't care or even they were kind of amused by the suffering that we were going through. So it, it was it was actually a really terrible time. And the final book in my LA After Midnight Quartet takes place at that time period. And I'm writing that book now. And it's really difficult going back and seeing how people treated one another. And I even questioned as I was writing, as I'm writing this book, will people even believe, you know, how badly some people acted? So yeah, it was a very tough time, very tough time. Yeah, I do remember all that in the news. But again, it was it, for me, it was something in the news. I'm sure like many of our younger listeners, I can't even imagine. In 1987, you moved to Los Angeles. I did. Was it specifically to get away from New York or did you have any specific goals? There were a number of reasons. I was taking care of my ex uh, who was ill with AIDS, and we really wanted to get out of New York. It was just such a cold, difficult city. And we just wanted to, uh, a warmer climate. So, th so that was basically the reason. But also, it was kind of an evolution for me. This is I'd always wanted to live in a, in a sunny climate. And so, th so that's what we did. Well, it's nice to talk to somebody from L.A. I, I talk to people from all over the world. So hi, neighbor. Hello. <laughs> and one thing I got to tell you that's really interesting. I saw in some information that you live near where O.J. Simpson's house used to be. They've torn it down now. Yeah. And you live near where gangster Mickey Cohen's house was. Yes. Yes. That, that's actually that's actually true. You've done your research. Well, I yeah. ca they caught my eye because I used to live in Brentwood and I lived oh. in Mickey Cohen's old home. Oh, you did? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's just a couple of blocks away. I drive by it all the time. That house was actually bombed, you know, they, they bombed. I think he was in the shower and that's what saved him. But, but that place was actually bombed at one point. Yeah, I actually had a great deal there. I rented the maid's quarters in the home and the owner of the house never left her bedroom. So I had free reign of this beautiful home with gorgeous pool. It's it a great deal for me. Oh, I, hear, I hear conflicting stories about the house. I heard that an alarm went off and Mickey had time to run and I guess... 30 sticks of dynamite were thrown into the house. <laughs> I used to hear, and we used to tell people was that Mickey was in the shower and they shoved the dynamite under the floorboard. And he was lucky enough that the dynamite was underneath his safe. Oh, yeah. I find the second story more interesting. So I'm going to go with that one. Well, they're great stories. Why not? Exactly. I always go with the more interesting one. Why wouldn't I do otherwise? <laughs> so we have that connection. You also have a connection when you came to LA with Elton John. I was Elton John's massage therapist for about two years. This is about 30 years ago. Whenever he, he was in LA, yeah, I would massage him. It's interesting, considering all the different work you've done, how did you become a massage therapist? Well, you know, I wanted to have a job where I could make a lot of money per hour. And I could live on that and then and spend the rest of my time writing. The focus was, you know, it didn't really matter to me what kind of work it was. I wanted to make a, a good amount of money per hour. And then I could also uh, do my writing. I didn't want to have a nine to five. And for me, massage was an okay way to make a living. But at that time period, basically every actor... Uh, who wasn't making a living acting was also a massage therapist, and every housewife who, you know, whose kids were in school was becoming a massage therapist. So there was just an awful lot of competition, and, and it, it was very difficult to make a living doing that. And I really only did it for a couple of years. 
if you saw the the movie Rocket Man, uh, Elton John's biography, I started massaging him about six months after that uh, movie was over. So after he got clean and sober? Yeah, I, I met him. Actually, went to his six. My uh, husband and I actually went to his six month sobriety party, and we were the only ones there who weren't in AA. And how did you come about meeting Elton, or how did that job come about? You know, I advertised in the Frontiers, which was the newspaper here at the time. And I think the reason I got the call is because I went to great lengths to make it clear that I was a legit massage therapist in my ad. A lot of people were doing, you know, more than that. And I got a call from his personal valet and he said, uh, George King is flying in from London and would like a massage. And I thought, this sounds a little bit weird to me. George King, King George. So anyway, but I went I went anyway, and it was in this big house off of Mulholland uh, that Elton was renting. He was actually in town for a couple of months then because his boyfriend at the time was taking some kind of a schooling because he was buying into a franchise. So that's how I actually got to know him. And, and, and Sometimes it was kind of surreal because I would be massaging his boyfriend and then Elton would be in the other room playing the piano. And I would think, you know, this is crazy. You're massaging someone. Elton is doing the accompaniment. It was so anyway, but it was it was a fun time. Massaged him over a period of about two years. When I first started massaging him, that was when I got my first uh, agent for my first book. And the last time I talked to Elton was about two years Later, he was in town for a, a fundraiser for AIDS Project Los Angeles, and he wanted to have a massage. And I told him, you know, my book has just come out. I'm doing a reading at a different like, bookstore, so I can't massage you. But he did something uh, that I thought was really sweet. A couple of days later, he went down to a different light, and he bought my book. And a lot of times people will they'll profess to have an interest in your writing or something like that. But he actually you know, took the time to go get my book. And I, I really appreciated that. And uh, for, for months afterwards, whenever I would go to a different light, the staff would crowd around me and talk about the day Elton came and bought your book. So, so anyway. Yeah, what an honor. And like so many gay bookstores across the country, I really miss a different light. And it's, oh, it's, yeah. it's sad to see them all going away. Yeah. And it's funny to me, you mentioned Frontiers, and they found you in an advertisement in Frontiers. And I don't know how wide of a circulation Frontiers had, but for the listeners, every major city had its own gay magazine, and, and Frontiers was the big one here in Southern California. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. And you're right, the advertisements in the back for massage therapists, well, they they certainly offered a lot more than... Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Prostate massage was used quite frequently. <laughs> I don't even want to picture that. <laughs> don't even want to think about it. So I just find it hysterical that that's actually where they found you when they were looking for a real therapist. That's funny to me. One thing that you were honored for was the was with one the National Gay and Lesbian Archive. Yes, uh-huh. you've got a contribution for Gay Lit. What was that for? You know, I think these things are often fundraisers. Uh, they had a big shindig at the um, El Rey Theater, which I don't know if you know that theater. It's, I think it's on Wilshire, and it's um, kind of a beautiful Art Deco building. Mm-hmm. And they they honored a number of writers. Lily Tomlin came, and she did a, a skit <laughs> for mm-hmm. us. And Patricia Nell Warren, you know, who wrote the front runner, was one of the people who was honored, but I was as well, and 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 several other people. All I remember is I I stood up, I bowed, and people applauded. That was that was kind of it. The National Gay and Lesbian Archive that's located at USC, correct? It is, yeah, and it's it's a wonderful thing. I go down there all the time for my books. Yeah, fantastic archives. Yeah, it's amazing. I think it's the best archives for gay literature. Yeah, I would I would think so. I'm, it, it, they just have, they just have everything. It, it's amazing. They have you know newspapers going back more than half a century and just just all kinds of stuff. Well, I got to tell you, they let me down. They did. I, uh, well, it wasn't their fault. I am working on a series I'd like to start that involves a gay PI in the 1920s. Oh, okay. And I, I couldn't find much, so I contacted them, and I yeah. 
the words came out of my mouth was I was look I was trying to find information about gay life in the 1920s, and the guy said, "Your job is done." And I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "We have information on the teens, and we have information on the 30s, but there's very little from the 20s." What? And I'm, are you serious? And I do know that was when Hollywood was starting to become the movie capital of the world. Sure. And before then, Hollywood was very conservative. And they worked with the police and had neighborhood brigades that would go through the neighborhood to make sure that nothing illicit was going on in the community. Other than that, there's not a whole lot of information. I know there were some speakeasies downtown that were gay clubs and and people met at, uh, I can't remember the big hotel that's right at MacArthur Park. But unlike New York and in Chicago, where there was a lot of, you knew it, but you didn't talk about it, gay shows going on. L.A. apparently wasn't one of them. I would recommend one book, uh, Gay L.A. by Stuart Timmons and uh, Lillian Faderman. It goes way back to like Native American times, and then it goes, you know, to the present. And, and that book was actually really influential for me for the L.A. After Midnight books. I, I never would have written those books without the research from that particular book. And Stuart Timmons was actually in my writer's group for about 20 years. He passed away a couple of years ago. But when I read the a chapter he had written on L.A. in the 1950s, which I think that the, the chapter is titled L.A. Noir, but anyway, I called him up and I said, you know, this is a mystery writer's dream. And several of the characters in my books are actually based on real life people who are in that chapter. So that's something I can really recommend to you. You know, I was familiar with that book and I've completely forgotten about it. I think I was going to buy it and I never did. So thank you for the reminder on that. Well, yeah, it's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book. And when you got to L.A., you wrote 25 telenovela scripts. I did. Yeah, that was, that was a, a fun experience. It was sort of an odd thing. For, for many, many years, they were trying to get the telenovela art form uh, into American television. You know, it's very popular in South America. These are mm -hmm. essentially soap operas, but they have a limited number of episodes, 100 episodes or 200 episodes or something like that. And they've been trying for years to try to make a successful one, an English language one for American audience. And this was an attempt. It was, this was actually an, a failed attempt at that. It was filmed in Mexico and it had two different casts. We wrote the scripts for the English speaking cast and then they would have Mexican writers write uh, for the, the uh, Spanish speaking cast and they would use one set. But when they were doing the Spanish speaking stuff in like the living room, they'd be filming the English speaking stuff in the in, in some other room on the set. And so it, it was it was done on uh, the cheap. But, you know, it never even aired in America. So I refer to it as as you know, my cheap Mexican soap opera, <laughs> so anyway, but it was, it was a lot of fun and I got paid for it. And it was, it was an interesting experience for me. Yeah. I couldn't figure out how you wound up uh, writing telenovelas of, of all things. So that's interesting yeah. that they tried that failed experiment, unfortunately. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's just sort of a weird, it, it's a, a, a weird way to tell stories. The producers of the show actually developed the storyline and all the cliffhangers and I would receive, it would be basically a couple, a couple of paragraphs, uh, and, and then I would turn the, that into a finished script. Well, I want to get back to talking about your novels. Okay. I, I brought up Doug Orlando. There are police procedurals that take place in New York during the early uh, 1990s. Okay. But then later you wrote the L.A. After Midnight Quartet, and that's your second series, and I want I don't know if you're aware, Justine, who does the book recommendations at the beginning of the show. She did the, yeah, yeah, the Yellow Canary. She was very kind. I am, I am so thankful. I think she called it somewhat of a classic. So she's my new best friend. Sounds for a canary. Well, here, here's what it is. Yellow Canary, second book, Black Cat, third book, Blue Parrot. Okay, well, I want to say in her recommendation, she gave it a gritty recommendation. Why do you think she called it gritty? Uh, well, because it's a a tough book. It's it's a, a noirish novel, so I think that's that's why she gave it that category. 
And you said the Doug Orlando series was a police procedural. How was the L.A. After Midnight Quartet different? Well, they're historical mysteries. With the police procedurals, you have basically the, the team of police sort of standing over a dead body, usually at the beginning. And a lot of it has to do with police procedure and stuff like that. With the Doug Orlando books, because he's kind of ostracized by the the others in the police force, it kind of ha- it's kind of a mix of the police procedural and sort of the lone detective novel. So I've, I sort of merged those two subgenres for, for the, those books. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh oh. <laughs> the L.A. After Midnight is a quartet. And the third Don't one was the, the third Don't one was ask. written in 2016. Don't Where ask. is that? Is not a quartet. All I can tell you, all I can tell you, is my friends have learned not to ask me how my writing is going. Okay, to steer clear. Yeah, I've suffered from some pretty bad uh, writer's block, and you know, I, I had never been that sympathetic towards people who said, you know, they're suffering from writer's block. I just figured, you know, if you don't have anything to say, you don't have anything to say. For me, I have had something to say. I do want to say something. And it's just been, it's just been very difficult getting it out. It's hard to describe when it's happening to you. I remember James uh, M. Kane, you know, the classic mystery writer who wrote Double Indemnity, Mildred Pierce, uh, the Postman Always Rings Twice. In the 1950s, after he'd written these classic books, he decided that he was going to write the great American novel, his big, you know, Gone with the Wind-esque epic. And he ended up spending 10 grueling, excruciating years writing and rewriting this book. And finally, when he ended up publishing it after 10 years, it was a measly 200-page book, and nobody was interested. So you, you have to really... You have to really be careful you don't fall into one of these traps. And when it's happening to you, it's, you're, you're kind of powerless. Uh, but the good news for me is that I'm almost done with the book, so I will have it out soon. I won't give a date, but I see the light at the end of the tunnel. Well, you're smart. I give dates, and then I never make them. So, And then I have readers saying, what's happening here? Yeah, so smart you're not on alone. You. I am curious, the book follows several decades. The first in the book is in the 50s, the second in the 60s, and the third in the 70s. Yeah. Is it possible that you had the writer's block in the 80s because it was such a difficult era? In some ways, I think so, but I'm I'm just not sure. You know, you look for excuses. Why why can't I do this? So 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 it could be that it, it certainly it is a, a painful book to write because I'm writing very honestly about what happened to us at that time period. And it's just a a time period that I remember very, very well. But I I think that there's actually something else going on and I'm just not sure uh, what causes writer's block, but anyway. Well, some people say there's no such thing and I I totally disagree. So I understand where you're coming from. The protagonist in that series is Paul Winters. And we see him over a period of 30 years in the series and soon to be 40 years. Yeah. Who is Paul Winters? Well, in the first book, he's a crusading deputy district attorney. He's being groomed to be uh, the next district attorney. But of course, he has a secret, the fact that he's gay. And if anybody finds out, his career will be ruined. And he has a younger, dangerously political Jewish boyfriend, David. And David is kind of the modern gay man. He's way ahead of his time. And he believes that gay people have to protest in the same way that Black people are doing at that time period. And of course, for Paul, that's crazy. If he were to go to a march supporting gay rights, if such a thing even existed, he would be fired from his job. He might even be disbarred. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain tension going between them. And then the third main character in the story is Jim Blake. And Jim Blake is kind of, he's a really handsome, attractive guy. He's sort of the gay everyman in a way for that time period. He's not political. He doesn't really understand uh, how the political winds affect his life. 
He's just trying to live kind of day to day. And he's the one who sets the whole story in motion. It's his first night on the job uh, as a vice cop. And because he's so handsome, it's his job to go into a gay bar and just to sit and wait for someone to make a pass. And once they do, he will arrest them and their entire life is going to change. What happened when gay people back in the 1950s were arrested for soliciting is it would be very difficult first to even get a lawyer because most lawyers felt dealing with homosexuality was just so sleazy that they didn't want to be involved. And you'd usually end up spending maybe a year's salary for your lawyer to try to plead your case down so that you didn't have prison time. And then a lot of times the police would also go to your landlord and expose you and thus you'd lose your home as well. And then they go to your employer and then uh, your employer would fire you. Or if your employer might say, you know, gee, I don't care. He's a good worker. I don't care if he's a homosexual or not. Well, then the employer could be visited by federal agents who would say, you're going to lose your government contracts. You're going to lose your security clearance if you don't fire this guy. So just for being in a bar and saying, yeah, let's go home together, you could have your whole life ruined. And that's what happens at the beginning of the very first book. Jim Blake arrests this guy. And that night, the guy uh, is found dead in his cell. And Jim Blake feels really guilty about what he's done. And so he bands together with Paul Winters, the deputy district attorney, to try to find out who killed this guy and, and why he was murdered. I can see why your books would be called gritty, because you don't dance around the subjects at all, from what I'm hearing. You know, it's, it's pretty dark stuff, but at the same time, it's really about resilience. It's a, this, these books are my homage to my parents' generation of gay men and lesbians and how they built the foundations of the gay rights movement. The books begin in the 50s, and they're going to go over a period of 40 years. Where, where did you come up with that concept? Well, I, for some reason, I wanted to tell the history of the gay community in America during the last half of the 20th century. And the Doug Orlando books were, they took place in the early 90s. So I thought that the 90s were kind of done. And so that's how I came up with the idea of, of doing it the 50s through the 1980s. Originally, it was only going to be a trilogy. And then I thought, gee, if I end these books in the 70s, everybody's going to be asking, hey, wait a minute, what happens to these people 10 years later? Because the AIDS crisis was such a catastrophe. So I realized I had to do it as a quartet and include uh, that in the story as well. Well, it's very creative. In addition to the mysteries we talked about, you have two novels that are standalones, uh, The Endless Night and Raising Cain. And I know Raising Cain is a young adult novel, correct? It is. Yeah, it's an occult thriller. It's kind of a, a coming out occult thriller, gay, gay occult thriller. And that's the thing. They're, they both have supernatural aspects to them. Is that something you see yourself writing more in the future? I don't think so. Uh, for some reason, I got really interested in the religion Santeria. And so both of them deal with that. This Endless Night is the only book I've written with a heterosexual protagonist. It's a heterosexual woman. And so that was, that was really an interesting book to write. But what I found is that uh, my adult gay novels are the ones that sell. People don't seem to be terribly interested in reading my book with the, the heterosexual protagonist. Understand. Was, so in Raising Cain, was that the young adult novel? Is that the one that you said had a, a straight? It has a gay teen. It has a gay teen. It's a fast moving thriller, but it's also it has a lot of the, the elements of, you know, the, the coming out, uh, the gay coming out novel. Yeah, because uh, young adult gay novels are very popular right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. And th this book, it doesn't sell as well as my adult books do, but it does sell. With my heterosexual book, it's like, I can't, I cannot give that one away. And it's actually a good book. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. Going back to something you said earlier, you said your books have been out for 30 years and you're happy that people are still buying them. It must feel good when you get that royalty check. These books are still selling. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I get paid every month. But there's a satisfaction. And I mean, because there are people who are reading the books now who aren't even born 
when I wrote them. And I find that kind of extraordinary. So you are a two-time Lambda finalist. I am. You were honored by the National Gay and Lesbian Archives. What does success look like to you? What does success look like to me? Well, I had always wanted to make a living as a writer. And that's something I've been able to do very rarely. You know, there's really been moments in time when I've been able to do that. So that's a success that I haven't achieved. So I've had to be satisfied with the fact that I feel like I've written good books that have a lot of meaning to people. With the LA After Midnight books, sometimes I'll get letters from young people saying, I'm learning my history by reading your books. Or I'll get a letter from an elderly gay man who says, you know, thank you so much for telling my story. And, and so I, I guess I, I've started measuring success in the fact that I'm really touching people's lives. I, I got a, an email from someone in, in India telling me you know, how important my books were to him. And I didn't even know that my books were available in India. So I, I guess that's how I'm measuring success now, by the fact that I'm touching people's lives, even though it's not like I'm in, making uh, a, a lot of money on the books. So you left Seattle to go to New York to become a writer, which Mm -hmm. tells me that you have wanted to be a writer from an early age. Yes, yes. That's all I ever wanted to be. I was only interested in books and movies. What are some of the earliest books that set that spark of fire? Well, Mysteries, what happened was that, I mean, when I was a, a kid, I read Agatha Christie's and... I can remember there was a Hardy Boys ripoff called Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators. <laughs> but I, I kind of lost interest in the mystery genre probably when I was in my early 20s. I wasn't interested in books that were just puzzles. I think I wanted more. And what happened by the 1980s is I think a lot of people started being disillusioned with literary fiction. They felt that, I don't know, the books just weren't really that good. And at that time period, Uh, crime writers started writing about social issues. They started writing about the stuff that I was interested in, you know, the deteriorating inner city, racism, homophobia, sexism, all this kind of stuff. So that's, and also I liked books that were strongly plotted. So I was really drawn towards crime fiction. And when I discovered uh, Joseph Hansen, that really changed things for me. Probably your your listeners know Joseph Hansen was a, a gay mystery writer And in a way, he was kind of the spiritual daddy to a whole generation of of younger uh, gay mystery writers. Uh, He started writing the Dave Branstetter series, I think, about 1970. And he wrote, I think, over a dozen of those books. And uh, I I just really worshipped him. I I was just blown away by his uh, writing style. And so he was a a huge influence on me as a mystery writer. He was the biggest influence. He was a big influence on many, or is still a big influence on many writers. And you're right, it was Fade Out was his first novel that came out in 1970. Correct, yeah. He was very groundbreaking. Yeah, and and incredible style. I mean, he just just wrote beautifully. He just just blew me away. So you are sitting at home and you decide you want to, read a book. What are you going to reach over for? Ooh, it just sort of depends. I read an awful lot of nonfiction just because it sort of fuels my, my historical uh, mystery novels. Sometimes I'll go through like a weird phase. A couple of years ago, I went through a boy adventure phase and I read like King Solomon's Mines, The Island of Dr. Moreau, Arthur Conan Doyle's The, the Lost World, all this kind of stuff. And those books, which are like 100, 150 years old, they absolutely blew me away because they hadn't dated really at all. They felt like they were written yesterday. And it just kind of hit me that, you know, if you write, you know, clearly and concisely and stuff, your books, you know, can have real lasting power for for many, many years. But yeah, I, I jump around to all kinds of different, uh, all kinds of different stuff. I do read some mysteries. I read some literary stuff. It, it, it's it, it's it's all over the place. You have an eclectic reading style. Yes, indeed. I I need to work on that for sure. 
When you aren't reading or writing, what do you like to do? Well, I live for Netflix. My husband and I really enjoy uh, hiking. And it just turns out that Los Angeles is a very big city, but people don't realize that it's bisected by a mountain range. Mm-hmm. And I can go just about a mile away from me and I can be in nature. We do uh, hike on trails and we see rattlesnakes and we see families of deer. And it's all, you know, it's five or 10 minutes away from where we live. So we do that every weekend. Every weekend we try to come up with a new trail to go on. Is this mostly up in the Hollywood Hills? Uh, well, it's not the Hollywood Hills so much because I'm closer to the ocean. It's uh, north of Brentwood. Okay. I know the area you're talking about. Yeah. My husband and I like to go through the Hollywood Hills. We haven't since the pandemic started, but it, there's so many different trails. And I was researching the Hollywood Hills and the Hollywood sign from my last book. So we did that quite frequently. It oh, is yeah. great. There's so many hiking opportunities throughout Los Angeles, which probably surprises a lot of people that think it's yeah. just think it's just a concrete paradise. And it is that, but it, it's more than that. Well, that hiking has kept me sane in this last crazy year of COVID. Yeah, I understand that. I think it has many. I can almost guess the answer to this one, and I probably shouldn't even ask it, but when it comes to writing... Have you ever faced the conflict of writing what you want and writing what is marketable? I've always just written the books that I wanted to write. uh, And I just can't see writing for a market. The the most commercial book I ever wrote, I felt, was the book with the heterosexual woman protagonist. And that's the book that sells the least. You just can't predict. I, I just think it's too hard to write a book to write something that has no meaning to you, just writing in the hopes of getting published, in the hopes of fulfilling some you know, market thing or something. So uh, if I was to recommend anything to other writers, it would always be to write, write something that's important to you. It's just, too, it's just too hard to waste your time on something that has no meaning for you. Yeah, there are groups, some of them on Facebook, that teach people to look at the market and find out what's popular and write some books really fast. And then when the market changes, write more fast. And it's a great way to make a really good income. And I'm sure there's plenty of people that see this strictly as a business. I can't imagine doing that. It's an art. And that's the part of it I appreciate. Granted, we all would like to make a lot of money doing what we love to do. But to have training to teach people that aren't necessarily into writers, but want to be writers to earn a, earn a living is really shocking to me. Yeah, that just that just doesn't do the trick for me. <laughs> and, and plus, there are a lot easier ways to make a living than, <laughs> than through yeah, writing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is now time for Awkward Question Authors Get. No. Yes, it's your time. I know you're aware we did away with it and we brought it back. And I interviewed dozens of authors to get what common things do they get that are difficult to answer or what very strange things have they been asked. And okay, got a good number of them. So if you hold still, I'm going to spin the wheel while I draw okay. your question. Do it. Okay. Got an interesting one for you. Okay. Do you write sex scenes from experience or is it all from your imagination? Oh, okay. That's not a bad question. You know, I would say it's imagination. Uh, it was kind of funny. I have a sex scene, which I think is actually really good. And the second book in the LA after midnight quartet, and we were talking about it in my writer's group. And they were saying that they thought that the scene was hot and that it worked really well. But one of the guys in the group questioned whether he said, is this anatomically possible? (laughs) 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 And I I thought, well, maybe I should try this out, but I never did. So (laughs) now you have my mind spinning to know my my mind spinning to know what this was. You'll have to read the book. Okay. (laughs) It's the second book. It's the second in the series. Okay. okay, I'll look it up. (laughs) Okay. You have piqued my interest. Okay, so reminder to everyone, my guest today is Steve Neal Johnson, and he wrote both the Doug Orlando Mystery Series and the L.A. After Midnight Quartet, and I will have plenty of links in the show notes as to how they can reach your books and your website as well.
Wonderful. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Okay. Thanks again. Be sure to subscribe to Queer Writers of Crime wherever you hear our show. Tell a friend, too. Thank you for listening.